This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So um, our overview here, we've got pain as a mind-body experience. I'll be starting off. I'll be giving some background about the biopsychosocial model. I'll also be talking about a conceptual model called ACEs. We'll get into that a little bit. And we'll do a little bit of a case study. I think it really brings to life what pain is like in real life when we talk about actual people living with pain. Um, and then we'll get on to kind of the meatier part of um, the talk where Dr. Ivan's going to share now what? She's going to talk about some mindfulness interventions, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, and some actually future advances in pain psychology and provide some resources as well. And we'll have time for Q&A at the end. So I won't get too into this, but we have some chronic pain epidemiology here. Um, as many of you know, chronic pain is highly prevalent in around the world. Um, in the US, this is a recent study that came out with the CDC uh, last year. And in 2019, we know that well, approximately 50 million Americans, that's a little over 20% of Americans had a chronic pain condition. Of that, so about actually overall, about 7%, 7.4% had a chronic pain condition that we would consider a high impact chronic pain condition. And that means a condition that limits daily function, inability to work or do kind of the daily activities that one would wanna do. We see here that there is some statistical difference between men and women. Um, you can see my pointer here that we see actually there is a statistical difference in which more women than men experience chronic pain. This is the um, information for adults. Um, I work, uh, and Dr. Ivan as well, work with adults with chronic pain. Um, the stats are certainly a bit different for children and a, um, a different number entirely. Um, but these are overall, um, the stats do work out similarly in terms of children where we have more girls than boys experiencing chronic pain. So um, I like to start with this definition of pain. Um, it comes from the IASP or the International Association for the Study of Pain. It's this you know, professional organization that talks about pain. And often we think of pain as a physical experience, right? It's an injury. It's what we might consider like a tissue damage is something like a physical problem. But their definition of pain is actually that it is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience. And it's associated or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So really highlighting, it's not just the sensory experience, there is an emotional component to pain. And that sometimes it's not even an actual tissue damage, not even actual injury. There's just a potential for injury and that there can still be the experience of pain. And so I'm gonna step back and walk you through kind of an example here. Um, this actually comes from a physical therapist. This is kind of a concept that comes from a physical therapist named Laura Mosley, um, but it's something I think most of us really can relate to. So let's imagine that we are on this path here, this I think is somewhere near Guerneville, um, one of our beautiful Northern California redwood paths. And just imagine that you're walking down nice and slow. 
you hear kind of the crunch of the leaves and sticks. It's a little wet here in this photo, um, appropriately for our recent weather. And kind of hear a little splash if your feet get stuck in the mud a little. There's a lot of kind of debris around, and so you feel some branches scratching your leg. And feel a couple scratches, but you know, you kind of brush it off and you keep on walking. And and then you feel kind of a, a sharp little prick. And you don't think much of it, but you look down and you see this. You see a tick. Um, and so you jump and you fortunately are able to extract the tick from your leg. But now you've still got the rest of your path to walk. And even though the tick is no longer on you, we're now walking along this path and those little crunches beneath your feet and those little branches and brushes that are kind of brushing by your legs as you walk by, little splashes of water, all of them feel a little bit different. They feel a little bit more worrisome. You might jump a little bit more when one of those little branches brushes your legs or even a splash of water. Um, the sensations that felt like little kind of small scratches or just little discomfort um, now might actually feel like pain. They might have a sensation that feel more like a, a tick bite or a prick of some sort. And so what's happening here? Nothing's different. You've been bitten by the tick, but all the other things are the same. You're walking through the same path. Maybe there are additional ticks, but every time you look down, there's nothing else, just the same old branches that you were walking by. So what's happening here in part is we are getting a physiological stress response, right? And so some of you may have heard of this as the fight or flight response. When we experience danger, our body turns on a whole series of events um, It activates something called the sympathetic nervous system. And this system is meant to protect us from danger whether it's a tick or a lion or any other kind of danger that might be uh, that we might be confronting. And so it does things like releases all these hormones like you know, cortisol, adrenaline, all sorts of things happen. Um, this also causes a cascade of effects in our body like our heart races, we feel maybe sweaty, maybe shaky, can't breathe. Um, our blood flow changes, our blood vessels constrict, and our temperature changes in different parts of our body. All this stuff happens without us really knowing. One other thing that can happen is that we are tuned up. Kind of our sensitivity to pain and danger can be tuned up, right? We're more likely to jump, we're more hypervigilant, and that's another way our body is protecting us. Our muscles get tight and tense. And this is a good thing. This is actually a good thing to prepare us if something dangerous is truly coming. Um, however, in the case of chronic pain, which is something I'll be talking about really for the majority of this lecture, many of the things are more focused on chronic pain, um, we may actually still get some of this response. We may be hyper-tuned, hyper-aware of all the bad things that may happen, of all the danger that's coming because that's what pain's supposed to mean, that some danger is here. And well, what do we do then? So the experience of pain 
is more than just the tissue damage, right? It's more than just that tick bite. The experience of pain includes something we can conceptualize as we call the biopsychosocial model. It includes not just the, the tissue damage, not just the tick bite, um, which a fancy word for the experience of pain is the nociception. It actually, it also includes that stress response, right? Things like cortisol and adrenaline that I just talked about. And Dr. Ivan's actually gonna talk a lot more about later. Um, it may include things like a disease or an injury or even our genetics, but it also includes a lot of psychological and social aspects. What is the environment we're in? Is it a safe environment? Um, are there threats in our environment? Are there um, other aspects of our environment, whether they're social stressors, family, work, financial stressors? How about other psychological aspects, things like depression and anxiety? If we have a pre-existing anxiety condition, pain can actually, that whole stress model, right? Everything can be kind of elevated. So all of these things actually feed into the experience of pain. Pain is not a, a one tiny little thing that our brain just experiences um, at the point of injury. It's more than that, especially for chronic pain. So I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here and talk about a conceptual model for developing chronic pain conditions. This is now kind of even beyond that fight or flight response I talked about. There's a, a bigger picture. This is kind of really a public health approach to pain. And this example here, this is um, a sample of over 200,000 people um, back in the 90s. Um, it's a national sample. And there was a study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, or the ACEs, as it's called for short. Sometimes people will call it toxic stress. And a whole bunch of research kind of, they, there were a lot of different factors, all sorts of factors that we can experience in childhood, lots of different traumas. And through a variety of research methods, we kind of drilled down and were able to find really kind of the top 10 predictors of problems in adulthood. And these top 10 predictors actually account for a lot. They're really highly correlated and not just correlated, but in fact, predictive of adult health, mental health, and other problems. So these 10 factors are um, in the category of abuse, it's emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, other household challenges. So things like um, seeing the mother of the household treated violently, um, including things like substance abuse in the home, mental illness in the home, separation or divorce, or having an incarcerated member of the family in the house. The last category is neglect, and that's both emotional and physical neglect. So um, physical neglect includes not having proper housing or food, um, and emotional neglect would be not providing emotional support, but also ignoring and um, not meeting the needs of the child. So the percentages you see here are, they don't sum up to 100. These are the percentage of respondents of those over 200,000 people that said yes to that. It's a yes, no question. So you can imagine that people are checking these boxes, going through the list of 10, and you can score zero. You can say, I, I didn't experience any of these, um, or you can score 10, say I experienced all of these. These are two major studies. Um, and 
actually the study I was talking about is actually the more recent one. That was the 2011 to 2014 study. Um, and so that's the one you see on the right, that's the national survey. Um, and the other major study that um, we kind of base a lot of the early research on ACEs happened in the 90s from, it's actually a Kaiser study from Southern California, uh, several Southern California Kaisers that had uh, about 17,000 people respond. And we see that just the Kaiser study and the national study look pretty similar in terms of how many people experienced these ACEs. And the research has further shown now, as we look at correlations, like why do we care about these ACEs? Of course, it's awful for children to experience any of these negative events, but what does it mean for them as they grow up? And each, as you can imagine, each additional ACE a child experiences, each additional one of these, you know, whether it's abuse or neglect, um, each one adds to kind of the risk of increased problems in adulthood. There's no magic number, more is worse. Um, it's very common for people to experience one or two. As you can see here, uh, something like 30 something percent of people experienced none. And then about a quarter of people experienced one um, and something like 13 to 16% experienced two. But what we really see happening is people who experience four or more of these ACEs, we see a pretty dramatic increase in problems in adulthood. And so in these studies, it's something like 12 to 16% of people um, in the US are experiencing four or more of these ACEs. And what does that mean? Research shows, I won't go into all the details of it, but we found that having these adverse childhood experiences leads to an increased risk of all of the things on this slide. And so early adversity has very lasting impacts. We've got increased risk of things like traumatic injury or fractures or burns, which doesn't seem to make a lot of immediate sense if you guess, um, but these are all things that have really um, been shown in the research. And less surprising that having all of these childhood traumas does increase the adult risk of mental health conditions, things like depression, suicide, anxiety, PTSD. Also affects maternal health, infectious diseases, um, risky behaviors, and that includes things like substance use disorders, um, includes opportunities as well. So. It affects people's likelihood of achieving higher education. It affects income levels. And what we're gonna focus on is the chronic disease aspect. Um, and chronic pain is considered a chronic disease. Pain is not just um, the pain itself, but actually it, it functions like a disease um, and a chronic disease that needs to be managed is something more like diabetes. And to barely skim on this literature, um, there's so much here. ACEs increase risk of chronic pain across multiple conditions. And this includes things like migraine. Um, certainly it actually, it's not just adults. The, a lot of research about this is about what happens in adults, but there's plenty of research to show that it increases the risk of chronic pain in youth. And a, a host of conditions, whether it's, I have here pelvic pain, but there's all sorts of additional ones ranging from fibromyalgia to chronic fatigue to even increased risk of low back pain. I could go on, um, but it's the research is robust in this. And of course, it's not 
causal. Um, we can't say that this is the one thing having childhood traumas or adverse experiences is the cause of adult chronic pain, but it certainly increases the risk. So I'd like to talk through a brief case example here. We're going to talk about um, a patient of mine that I had some time ago named, we're changing her name to Eva, and I've changed some of the details just to protect her identity. Um, but I will say that this patient is also fairly representative of many patients I see in our clinic. So I, I work with the chronic pain clinic at UCSF, and we're a pain psychology team of two, Dr. Ivan and I, and we see any patients referred directly from our clinic. In this case, um, she was referred by um, her primary care doctor to come to our clinic with a specific hope to see some pain psychology services. Um, she was experiencing pelvic pain and headache, but also was experiencing some mental health, um, mental health stressors. So um, Eva is a 41-year-old Latina female. She had chronic pelvic pain when I saw her. She was experiencing problems from both endometriosis and interstitial cystitis. She has type 2 diabetes. She has chronic migraine. Chronic migraine meaning migraine for more than half the days of the month. Um, she also had chronic fatigue syndrome. And she also carried a diagnosis of fibromyalgia, but people weren't really sure. <laughs> um, she didn't feel sure about this diagnosis. She felt like it was more chronic fatigue. Um, some doctors had said it was fibromyalgia. And we just weren't too sure um, and decided that the labels themselves were actually not that important and her experience was more important. Um, mental health wise, she also had um, experiences with depression and PTSD. She had a history of smoking and cannabis, but no drug use, um, no substance misuse. Her pelvic pain and migraine began in her teens and seemed to have worsened over time. And kind of somewhere around her mid twenties, things just started kind of spreading. She started, it wasn't just the pelvic pain anymore. It wasn't the migraines. The migraines became more and more frequent and the pain just started kind of being aches and pains, joint pain, muscle pain, and a lot of fatigue. Um, she had tried many, many medical interventions. So a number of different injections, um, a number of different medications. Um, and she'd also tried a number, number of kind of non-traditional or complementary interventions, things like chiropractor, or acupuncture, she tried a, a bit of that as well. In the last few months though, she came to us because she had an even more, an increase in pain and panic attacks. Um, and that she was able, I don't think I have this written down, she was able to work part-time, um, but she was finding that she was struggling to work even part-time during this kind of flare of her pain and fatigue and anxiety. And she came because she actually was wanting to find how could she cope with this pain. She had tried so many different medications and so many different kind of injections and various different procedures that hadn't made much of a difference. And she, she just said, I, I'm at the end here and I'm looking to cope. And so we step back and kind of try to look, you know, back to the biopsychosocial model and think about how to treat people as a, a whole person and not just little bits of each individual symptom that they're experiencing. And that's kind of the role of psychology in this place is to zoom out and 
back to this conceptual model around the assessing the trauma history and thinking about how did this happen? And so when we go through her history, we see that she has a, um, an ACE score of four. So of these areas that we know, these 10 possible ACEs, um, she does have an experience of sexual assault, both in childhood and adulthood. Um, she did experience neglect in terms of they were um, financially um, resource constrained and she experienced food insecurity at some times in her childhood. Um, she also had emotional neglect. Her um, single mom who was not very present and the, in terms of household dysfunction, um, mom was not very present in part because of her difficulties with addiction and bipolar disorder. And so these are her four. And if we go back to what we know, we know that each individual ACE increases risk of all of these adult adverse outcomes. And so it becomes a little less surprising that all of these things are happening. And so I, I can share this with the patients that I work with, provide something, a, a bit of a different approach instead of the trying to label, is it fibromyalgia or is it chronic fatigue and trying to find that label. But if we zoom out and say, maybe there's a bigger picture beyond this, um, that we might actually find some different methods of treatment. And so that's actually kind of really where pain psychology comes in. In many patients that we work with, and, and in the case of, um, of Eva as well, pain becomes this center of life. Uh, all the things that matter to us, kind of you know, matters to these patients can kind of get edged out to the side. Um, and so things that matter to us, what are those things? They're things like our family, our friends, our work or school or volunteer work, um, things like religion and spirituality, relationships and hobbies, travel, um, all sorts of leisure activities like exercise, walking, gardening, hiking, all these things that used to be just all these different facets of ourselves get edged out and all of them end up kind of revolving around pain. So this is what I, I saw with Eva and again is, is quite common and it's very much what patients come to me for. And so our goal in pain psychology is to reframe pain and not get rid of it because as psychologists, I don't necessarily get to get rid of pain, but we can try to move it out to the side and say pain doesn't have to be so central to all of these things. It's unfortunately a part of the picture, but these are the aspects that are our identity. These are the things that make us who we are and how can we reconnect and, and regain these important aspects of ourselves. And so I am going to here transition actually to Dr. Ivan, who's gonna talk a little bit more about how we do that. So Dr. Jackson has given us a very nice introduction um, and a really nice case example. So this patient's coming through to us, now what? What do we do as pain psychologists? Well, one of the things that I hope you took away from um, the beginning part of this lecture is that pain is not just the sensation of pain, the physical sensation, but it's also the distress associated with it and the impact that it has on multiple areas of our lives. 
which means that there's lots of room for us as pain psychologists to jump in and be able to help and support patients in their um, ability to re-engage with things they love, with being able to do the things that make them them, that pain has maybe gotten in the way of. One of the things that we like to highlight is that as pain psychologists, we do not work on the biological piece, which means we can't take pain away or promise pain reduction. What we emphasize is that we hope to be able to keep the pain at its baseline level, meaning at its level that it's at its hopefully lowest. We hope to help people decrease the number of times that their pain goes from the baseline level to a spike or higher level and help them feel like they have more control and have more tools um, to use in order to be able to still engage in things that are meaningful to them. So in Ava's example, um, there's quite a bit that's going on. There's, as we mentioned, the biological factors, which are all the conditions that she has, the fibromyalgia, the chronic fatigue, the pelvic pain, um, and lots of other um, aspects, right? Then, then there's the psychological components, the history of trauma, the depression, the anxiety, the panic attacks. And then there's probably the social aspects, which we didn't dive into, but the way that having chronic pain for a long time has potentially impacted um, her ability to work, her ability to engage um, with her family and friends, how much she's been able to be part of. And so the first step in trying to help her reconnect to making that little, that big pain bubble, um, a smaller one, is to start out by providing some psychoeducation. And what I'll do throughout my talk is give you a rationale of why. Why do we care about people understanding how pain works, right? Psychoeducation is just a big word that highlights, um, do we understand how our pain system works and what role it serves? The reason we care here is because we know research shows that knowing more about our pain and how it works leads to lower pain intensity. It also leads to moving and exercising more. It improves our quality of life. So understanding how pain works helps us know what skills to also use to decrease that pain intensity and really be able to do more of the things that we care about and then make us us. So how do we do that? Um, well, we try to um, help patients really learn more about the function of pain. We do this collaboratively. So we want to help people reflect a lot more on, is this pain, is all pain good, is all pain bad? What is the function that pain really serves in our body? We want to help differentiate between acute pain and chronic pain. That's important there because a lot of us have experience with acute pain from when we're very young. And there's lots of strategies that work for managing acute pain that as we reflect on, find out may not serve us as well when we're managing chronic pain. So we want to help people really understand the differences between those two. 
And then we also want to help patients understand the role of the brain in pain perception. So Dr. Jackson already started talking a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system and the role that it plays in our body. And I'll be going a little bit more in depth into that um, aspect. So um, I like to have you all just pause here um, and reflect on this question. I know I can't have you all participate in this, but I think it's a nice point to pause and think. If I told you that this button that's in front of you right now would allow you to get rid of all pain forever, would you press this button? I'll give you just a couple of seconds here to think what the answer might be for you. What Dr. Jackson and, and I hear very often is usually a mixed bag. Some people who jump in and say, yes, uh, I will right away uh, press this button. Um, we have some people who say, definitely not. I would not press it. And we have some people who are ambivalent and they say, oh, this seems really tempting, but I feel like maybe I'm missing something. And so what this leads us to is actually being able to differentiate and understand for ourselves that pain is not all good and it's not all bad. And that actually has a function in our body. It's there to help us know to move our hand away from a hot stove. It's there to tell us if we stepped on a nail that it needs our attention so we pull it out so we don't get an infection. It's there to tell us if we've broken an arm and we need to go to the emergency room and get that fixed. So what we're talking about when we're talking about those examples is tissue damage. There's this idea of harm, something that needs our attention in this present moment. And most, most, well, not most, all of us have had experience with acute pain. Um, we typically go in and we know what that protocol looks like. If I break my arm and Dr. Jackson breaks her arm, we go into the hospital. We're probably going to have similar scans. We're probably going to have our arms put in a cast, told to rest and be passive. And then we're going to come have that cast off and hopefully return back to our functioning the way it was before, if all goes well. In general, with acute pain, we know there's a cure or a treatment that works for everyone. The people who jump in and say, no, I would not press that red button that you gave me the option to press, usually are thinking about the function that acute pain serves acute pain serves, right? So it allows us to know something is going on in our body and it allows us to activate so that we can recover and be better and go back to our functioning as is. There's very few people in the world who don't experience pain and we know they tend to die younger and not get that feedback from their body, which gets them in trouble a lot more. In terms of chronic pain, which is the people who jump and say, yes, press that button for sure, right? It's where the pain has persisted, right? It's ongoing beyond the expected point of, of um, healing. It's that idea of hurt, right? So not harm. Harm means there's damage, danger going on. Hurt is the sensation feels the same, 
but the signal isn't quite the same, right? There's not any damage happening in that um, scenario. The model we wanna take here is actually a very active patient who is managing the symptoms more from a lens like we would with diabetes or any other chronic pain condition. Meaning that even when we do our best, there's gonna be good days and days that are more challenging for us to navigate. It's not a linear um, process, which requires us to use different tools. Now, what can happen that we see is that when we think about that biopsychosocial model, when we go to the doctor, whether it's our chronic pain provider or any other doctor, we're simply addressing that biological piece. So we're missing two thirds of the pie, right? We're not addressing the psychological and we're not addressing the social impacts of the pain. And those all do also impact the way we perceive our pain in, in the body. The mind and body are connected. So when we have strong emotions and negative thoughts about our pain and we feel helpless, that's going to have an impact on the actual intensity of the pain. So it's going to increase that pain. So helping people understand this is a very crucial component. And understanding that that cycle that we might do when we have acute pain might not work here. So when we think about pain, right, most of us want to wait for pain to go away um, before we re-engage in things that we care about, right? So we avoid activity as a way to make sure that the pain gets better and we don't further damage anything or hurt ourselves. What can happen is if we have chronic pain and we continually wait for the pain to get better before we do, we end up deconditioning over time. And then pain comes up even quicker, right? We do less, less causes more pain because we, we haven't engaged with those muscles or done things, which then leads to further activity avoidance because it hurts more further deconditioning. And that's just the physical kind of cycle that we get into. For the psychological components which follow this, right? At first, right, we might feel some anger, anxiety, fear, um, depression, our mood kind of is going down, and we just are beginning to pay so much attention to our pain. That's how that pain becomes the center of our life. Everything is organized around that. So we want to propose something different, um, which I will talk about in the next um, couple of slides. But to go back to what Dr. Jackson had started talking about is we have our autonomic nervous system, which has two branches our sympathetic nervous system, right? Our fight, flight, or freeze response that you might've heard of before, which we know fires when the mind perceives threat. And then we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest. It's our relaxation response. We want these two to work for us when we need them. They both serve a function. And so with the sympathetic nervous system, right, that chain of events that happens in our body includes, right, things like our pupils dilating, 
we're alert, we're in survival mode, our heart rate is racing, we might have increased heart rate, we have muscle tension, right? We're kind of tense. We might also, things that we don't notice is that our blood vessels constrict. We have our digestion slowed, slowed down, right? That's not going to be important for us in that moment. Um, and a number of other things that are happening in our body. So there's physical signs that the sympathetic nervous system is activated. And that's a good thing, right? If I walk out into the parking garage and somebody's going to try to rob me, having my sympathetic nervous system activated is actually a really good thing, right? I don't want to be relaxed and taking it slow and doing my creative thinking in that process. I need to respond to stay safe. With chronic pain, what we know, though, as we mentioned, is that that signal isn't accurate. There's no danger actually happening, even though the sensation is the same. So when we have chronic pain, that's a chronic stressor that activates the sympathetic nervous system over and over and over again. And we have not just the physical signs that our system, our, our fight or flight system is activated, but there's also an emotional component, right? Panic, fear, anger, and a lot of other emotions that people bring up. Um, there's a cognitive impact, meaning our thoughts, right? We might have more anxious thoughts. We might be really attentive to threat. And what I mean when I say negative interpretation of ambiguous stimuli is that let's say I'm on the couch tonight after this talk and I want to, uh, you know, enjoy watching a movie and I feel a weird sensation on my leg, right? My brain's going to take me back to that example Dr. Jackson gave of walking through the woods and having that tick, right? So I'm going to have this weird scratchy feeling, which maybe somebody else who didn't experience the tick um, uh, scenario might not think anything of. But for me, because I had that experience, my memory center is going to bring it up, right? And it's going to activate that sympathetic nervous system right away. And then I might just find out that it's a popcorn kernel that fell down my pants or um, a piece of chocolate wrapper that's um, scratching my leg. So that ends up happening quite a bit. And so the threat is always elevated. And then we also have an over or underestimation of perceived control. There's also some behavioral components, right? Like social withdrawal. Um, avoidance or escaping. So what can happen is if we're fearful about causing more pain, we can end up wanting to avoid or escape things. So pain psychology has a lot of tools um, that we can work with to help patients turn down the sympathetic nervous system, turn down the fight or flight, because we know that it's not serving us well. I like to use the example of if you, you know, think about your fire alarm in your house, you want it to go off if your house is on fire, you want the neighbors to come, you want the whole system to be activated, you want the firefighters to come. But if you're making brownies in the oven, and you burn them by mistake, even though it's going to be unpleasant, your house isn't burning down, right? So we want to have a way to turn off our alarm 
to say, don't worry, don't send in the firefighters, don't send in everyone because I'm actually doing okay. And so how do we do that? Some of the tools that we use to turn down our sympathetic nervous system that we can teach people is are things like diaphragmatic breathing and mindfulness-based practices. To deal with the emotional component, we do something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which I'll also introduce. Um, and then the behavioral aspect is how do we help people re-engage with things they enjoy? And how do they do that in a way where they're not waiting for the pain to get better before they do it, but they're also not getting stuck in the cycle where they push through the pain just to be able to do it? We know both of those don't serve us well in the long term. So I'll jump into mindfulness and relaxation training first here. Um, why do we care about meditation? Well, we know that it's helpful for patients with chronic pain and that it can help reduce the pain. We're trying to teach our brain, we're trying to retrain our brain away from danger and towards safety. So pain can be reduced through that. We can learn to non-judgmentally observe sensations and thoughts and um, emotions in our body. We can learn that we are more than those things and distance ourselves from emotions that even if they're valid, tend to not be helpful for the pain and can worsen pain, can reduce stress and can relax your muscles. So just by relaxing our muscles, it can allow us right to feel a little bit um, less pain because we're not scrunching like this. So how do we do this? One, there's a big misconception that we frequently hear in pain psychology. I've tried it. It doesn't work for me. I can't quiet my mind. So there's this idea that meditation and mindfulness meditation is about having a quiet mind. And actually, it is not that. It's a practice that's quite active where we learn to pay attention to our thoughts, to our emotions, and to our physical sensations without judgment in the present moment. And so what I like to tell people is that there's two ways to pay attention. Sometimes when we pay attention the way we do when we study for a test, there's success and failure attached to that. So actually, we're going to feel some increased <laughs> stress response in our body if we know we have a test tomorrow or a presentation to give. The other way to learn how to pay attention is the way we might when we're just taking things in. If we're at the beach taking in and observing the sunset, or we're in the woods and paying attention to the redwoods or the river or the sounds of the birds around us, right? So we want to help teach people, one, how do you not let your brain take you for a wild ride wherever it wants to? How do we catch that and without judgment come back to the present moment? It's like a mental exercise for your brain. Um, and it's a very important component here. The common practices that we engage in, one and the number one thing that we teach everyone who comes in through our clinic is the deep belly breathing, which you might have heard of, and the diaphragmatic breathing. You can see that here in this diagram. It's when we take a deep breath in and we allow our belly to expand, which is a sign that we're using our diaphragm. We're not shallow breathing into our chest. 
And then when we exhale, we want to exhale on the same count and feel our belly contract. If you remember, one of the signs that our fight or flight um, system is activated, our stress response is activated, is the muscle tension in the shortness of breath that we experience. So the way we can tell our brain there's a false alarm is by slowing down our breath. That lets our whole system know that we're safe because that wouldn't be compatible with danger. And then it turns off all the other places, all, all the other aspects, right, that we talked about. Our blood vessels widen, our digestion starts working better again, our muscles relax. Other things we didn't touch on are that our body temperature can increase. Um, we tend to cool off when we're in danger. And so that is what we're doing, the deep belly breathing. We call that retraining the brain and letting you know that we're safe and not in danger. Other common exercises that people can try are things like progressive muscle relaxation, body scans, walking meditations. I won't go into all of them for the sake of time. What we typically encourage people to do is try a number of these strategies and see which ones are better fitted with their lifestyle and what works for them. There's not one right way to do it. Again, the main component here is teaching our brain how to have focused attention in a very intentional way without judgment. Which takes us to cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is a big part of what we do. We want to think about what cognitive behavioral therapy is. It's really a treatment that works for anxiety, depression, pain, and a lot of other um, diagnoses that we treat. The idea behind it is that in any one situation, we're going to have a set of emotions and physical sensations, right? Um, if I give the example of me walking out into a parking lot at night and feeling like someone's going to attack me, right? I'm going to feel fear. I'm going to feel my heart rate racing. I'm going to have my muscles tense up. That's going to be part of my experience in that situation. I'm also going to have a set of thoughts. Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Something bad's going to happen, right? So I'm kind of going there. And I'm going to have a way of responding, whether it's to run away or to run and get in my car and lock the door. And the idea here is that in any situation, we have these three components and that they all impact one another. Now, let's say that, you know, I walk out to my car and actually it's just the wind blowing, right? So I might still have that automatic response where I'm feeling the fear that comes up and the muscle tension and the heart rate happen. But I take a look around and I realize it's just the wind blowing and something happened. So I reframe my thought to saying something like, oh, it's just the wind, nothing, no one's trying to rub me or attack me, right? That's gonna be important here because then I can potentially take some deep breaths and help the emotional intensity come down. I can help turn down that fight or flight um, a nervous system. And so by changing the way that we engage with our thoughts and the way we respond to things, we can turn down the volume on our pain, on our anxiety, on our fear. We can't necessarily 
get rid of these just by wishing it away. And if you found a way to do it, please share it with us because that is um, usually people can relate. The more we don't want something, the more it grows. So the way we try to tackle that is through attacking our thoughts and changing our behaviors. So why is this important? Because we know that changing how we think, how we feel and respond to our pain improves our functioning. If I'm trying to retrain my brain away from viewing the signals or the unpleasant uh, stimuli as dangerous, then if I can go from, uh-oh, the pain is getting so bad, it will only get worse to, I'm gonna do the best I can in this present moment, or I know that my flares tend to get worse and then they get better, I know this will pass, that's going to help us create a different relationship with our mind and body. And it's going to feed into one another. It also encourage us, um, encourages us to use active coping. So if I feel like I have a strategy, how do I work with my thoughts? How do I work with my behaviors to help me? That's going to help me feel more empowered. And it also reduces avoidance of movement. Um, so we're going to be trying to really get people re-engaged with doing more. We know for chronic pain, for things to get better, we need to do more first. So it's completely opposite from that acute model where we need to wait for things to get better before we re-engage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here for the sake of time going through um, the research, but there is a lot of research that shows that the cognitive behavioral therapy helps reduce pain and disability. Um, it also helps um, in a number of different areas of pain that have been studied. If you're interested in this, um, you can take a look at some of the studies um, and, and um, learn more about it. The other component we know is that as we have um, pain for longer periods of time and longer periods of time of trying different interventions that don't work, if we think about Eva's example, she tried many medications and medical interventions and she still had her pain, we can start thinking very negatively, right? And those unhelpful thoughts, our brain perceives as threat, right? Whether I've lost my job or I'm just fearful that I've lost my job, my body will have a stress response to that. And so we want to be mindful and we have this component that we um, think a lot about in pain psychology, which is pain catastrophizing. It's that persistent negative um, thinking and emotional responses to actual or anticipated pain in the future. That sounds like my back will never get better. It's only getting worse. I will lose my job and never work again, right? Or pain anxiety, the fear in response to pain and anxiety about experiencing pain. The way that sounds when we see it, it's, it's difficult to calm my body down after my pain flares up. If I don't take medication, it will only get worse. The main takeaway here is if this is our thinking patterns, if you think of those three bubbles, that's going to amplify my fear, my anxiety, and it's going to also have that fight or flight response activated. 
So how we think about our pain actually affects how we react and feel physically. So I've given a number of examples here of kind of the beliefs that can come up, right? I'm unable to function because of pain and I'm helpless to improve my situation. Our goal here is to really help people look at the data to help them realize that they can actually, maybe there is something they have control over here, provide them skills to respond in adaptive ways and maintain those skills after treatment is over. We're human, so we're gonna keep experiencing negative emotions and negative thoughts. Um, the goal isn't that the goal isn't to not have those. The goal is to be able to catch them when they happen, to be able to tell ourselves, is this the whole story or am I missing some important data points here? We want to reframe that negative thought and see if it changes the way we feel, whether it's physically or emotionally. So we want to turn down the volume on those strong negative emotions and thoughts. That will in turn turn off our fight or flight response, and we'll be back into that rest, digest, and relaxation phase. So here we see a nice example, right? Um, what we might see prior to treatment, the thoughts being the whole day is ruined now that my pain has flared up, right? If you're at work and your back pain or headache pain flares up. And then of course, if we're thinking that way, anybody would probably feel worried, hopeless, have that increased muscle tension, and they might leave work early or cancel their plans with their friends. And we see that isolation component which then gets them stuck in this vicious negative cycle. What we want people to say is to be able to take a closer look and say, I can take a rest and see how I feel in an hour. I've had headaches that didn't last very long before. Our brain is wired to keep in mind the things that don't go well. And so we have to be an active participant in reminding our mind you know, yep, there's those two times where the pain was really bad. There's also these times when my headaches didn't last that long. So when we do that, maybe we say, okay, now I have more access to my problem solving skills because I'm not in that fight or flight. And I can say, let me do a breathing exercise and keep dinner plans for now, right? What we see is that we tend to feel less worried. We have we have more confidence in our ability to manage and use some skills, and we can decrease some of that muscle tension, all which will have a positive impact on our pain. So hopefully that was a nice introduction to some of the things that we really include, and hopefully we've provided a good rationale for why these things are important to us and why they actually are important to good pain management and good functioning. Some of the future advances in pain psychology um, come from uh, pain reprocessing therapy. So there's a new study that's come out. Um, this is also related to an app that I will provide resources to you all called Curable. The main goal of pain reprocessing theory is to help retrain our brain away from pain as a dangerous signal 
And the way we do that is some of the same components we kind of highlighted before, which is the mindfulness component, being able to pay attention to sensations in our body non-judgmentally and without attaching threat to it. Um, some of the cognitive reframing, so noticing where our mind goes when we have pain and seeing if there's any room for improvement there, and allowing ourselves to re-engage in activities that are meaningful to us so that we can start experiencing positive emotions and break that cycle of fear of movement. So this study that just came out at the end of September of, of this last month, really, um, looked at low uh, chronic back pain. And it really looked, it's a small population, but 70 men and 81 women. And uh, 50 of those participants were, were put in a group that really they received pain reprocessing therapy. It was nine sessions, one intake, and then eight. Um, therapy sessions over the course of four weeks. 51 people were put in an open label placebo group, which means they just received a saline injection. Um, and then 50 people were just asked to continue doing what they would do typically for their pain. And the findings found, right, that those people who um, were engaged in pain reprocessing therapy saw the biggest decrease in pain. The reduction in pain was significant compared to placebo and the usual care. This is a hopeful direction for us to go in. Um, I think some of the things that um, are important to know that is also part of this um, treatment is the idea of um, somatic tracking. How do we, instead of trying to always avoid the painful stimuli, how do we learn to pay attention to it in a way that makes us um, have a sense of, of safety? We're retraining the brain from the autopilot response that it's dangerous. The other intervention that we sometimes use in our clinic and that I'm um, very fond of is acceptance and commitment therapy. This is part of the behavioral family interventions. And really what we're trying to teach is different tools to help people be present in the here and now. So not thinking about all the things that have happened in the past and also potentially not thinking about catastrophizing about how the pain will be in the future. Um, having value-based um, goals. So being able to focus on things that are important to them and how can I engage in that even if I have to adapt from the way I used to do it before commitment. So that's taking action. It's the behavioral piece. Um, reminding yourself that you are more than your pain. Um, things can change. Sometimes we are dealt cards that we would have not picked for ourselves. And so how do we play the best game possible given the card that we were dealt? Being able to observe thoughts um, as just thoughts and not being ruled by them. So our behavior doesn't have to follow what the thought says. If my thought says get in bed and wait for the pain to get better, I can notice that that's just the thought I'm having and actually get up and potentially do some light stretching, which I know might be more helpful for me. And then acceptance. Doesn't mean we like it, doesn't mean we want it, 
but it means that we're willing to have that experience at the present moment. So there's a lot of strategies around how to do this through the ACT um, framework. There's other interventions that are up and coming, like virtual reality for the treatment of chronic pain that we cannot get into here today. But in some, what we hope you all take away from here is that to have effective and good pain management, it really does take a village. It is not simply the medical interventions that we get, medications or um, interventions, but those are an important part of the treatment plan. It's also addressing the psychological distress and being able to treat the whole person in order to improve their health outcomes. How do we get people reconnected to doing things that are meaningful to them? Addressing all of those factors is what leads to better functioning and potentially reduced pain over time. I've included some resources that I'm not gonna spend too much time here. These are some self-help books though. Managing Pain Before It Manages You is based on CBT. You can get it at the local library probably. Uh, Living Beyond Your Pain is something that's based on ACT. Um, I'll highlight just those two here. And the big ones here is Curable. If you're interested in learning more about um, pain reprocessing um, theory, uh, and how it works uh, and are more interested in that type of intervention, you can um, access some of these free resources here along with some of the relaxation resources listed. And of course, we encourage you to, uh, if you are interested, do the mindfulness-based stress reduction um, class, whether it's free online, you have a link here, or through the OSHA Center if you're more likely to engage by being in an active group. So thank you all for being here. Um, this is something that's so meaningful to us to be able to help people live a more full life. Um, we appreciate um, your attention and look forward to your question. Dr. Ivan, that was an excellent talk. Thank you so much. And thank you also, Dr. Jackson, very comprehensive. And I love the, the case presentation. I think that's always very helpful. There are a few questions and I will direct them to who I think they should go to, but if either one of you want to jump in, that's fine. This is for Dr. Yuli, uh, Dr. Ivan. Is um, the pain reprocessing theory currently offered at UCSF right now? So uh, there's components of it that we integrated into our care, but we are not certified pain reprocessing therapy uh, therapists. Uh, there is a list um, of providers. Um, if you go look through the Curable app of people who are certified in that, yeah. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. um, in your experience, how many sessions do you feel most patients need to acquire the CBD, the CBT techniques, like how best, you know, how many sessions do you feel on average they need? You know, that's such a great question. We work on a very time limited and focused model. So we usually see people for about eight sessions and we cover different tools every week. Um, that question is a little bit more complex. So when we do our assessment in the beginning, and Eva's case is a great one where there's just so much complexity there. 
So the way that treatment plan might look for someone is that they might be engaged outside of work with a pain psychologist and some trauma-focused work, which is very important, some work to address the depression and anxiety, and then potentially might come to see us to focus on pain-specific CBT tools, which should be time-limited. It's very skill-based, very goal-oriented. And we encourage people to go explore, take the skills that they've learned, apply them, and if they feel stuck, come back um, to get some booster sessions. But in general, it's very short-term, unlike a more traditional um, mental health uh, model where you might be going to therapy for longer periods of time, like six months or a year. Well, that's excellent to know that the patients can learn these skills at home and practice them, but then also come back and have a refresher or learn about new techniques. I think that's that's excellent. Um, there is a couple other questions about the ACE scores. Uh, Dr. Jackson, how do you utilize the ACE scores to plan your treatment for patients? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I approach it very collaboratively. I educate the patients some about what ACEs are and we talk about the risk factors. Of course, it's not the patient's fault, this has happened. Um, and so I share with them, this is what the research shows, um, that it's kind of like a, a different explanation that often patients feel, of course, some sense of sadness, but often some sense of relief. Um, like in the case of, uh, in the case of Eva, where she had just seen so many doctors and had so many different uh, types of treatments that didn't do anything. And there wasn't any real reason to glue everything together. And when we talked about the ACEs and how actually really her childhood experiences and, and life experiences, it causes a biological change in the way that we respond to stress and the way we respond to anxiety. Um, and from that baseline, a part of the treatment actually is that education. <laughs> um, so how I decide to treat patients is really um, that is a part of the treatment, um, just understanding that and having a, a big picture view. And then depending on the type of trauma, usually just as Dr. Ivan said, our, our treatment's pretty, we have the confines of how many sessions we can see at a university medical center. Uh, and so often if there's extensive trauma in, in various areas, um, I'll refer patients out or discuss about how they can do longer term psychotherapy elsewhere that's trauma informed, you know, to work on either a history of sexual trauma, um, for instance. Um, but otherwise, sometimes we, we work on that in session. And really what we do is we don't focus so much on untying all of those actually adverse experiences that they had, but the education about what does it mean for the patient's body now? What does it mean for their mind now? And what are those tools? Very much like what Dr. Ivan went through. What are those tools that we can use? And it turns out that a lot of the tools are the same tools, no matter what, <laughs> what ACEs people have experienced. Um, and people who experience a lot of ACEs don't often don't learn a lot of coping strategies. They don't have good models for how to take a break, how to pace, how to be mindful. Like there's no model for that. Um, and so we're, we work in session with patients to do that. Yeah, I, I, I think focusing on the here and now is a very good approach. And I can see how that, that therapy would work well, focusing on that, especially knowing the past. 
on a follow-up question on the A screening, and you may not know this, but do you know if it's performed by pediatricians to help with early intervention? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think actually a lot of, um, there's a lot of education in county hospitals in particular, so large metropolitan hospitals, so something like San Francisco General, certainly ACEs are, this is something that's been talked about quite a bit in the last couple of decades in medicine. And so in a pediatric, any kind of pediatric setting, the providers know about it. Um, And I I can't speak how widely that's happening, like nationwide, but certainly uh, major medical centers. Yeah, pediatricians know about this and are likely utilizing it in some way. That's great news. That is so good to hear. We do have a question from the chat. Um, a, a member has asked, "Do you how do you approach patient buy-in at times we encounter patient population that's trained to really want pharmaceutical medications uh, and just be completely pain-free? So how do you approach that and how do you approach patients that meet with resistance to your ideas? Yeah, I can address that one. Um, you know, I, I really... My work actually comes a lot in the stigma of mental health. That's how I found my way into health psychology is that there's so much stigma of mental health conditions and mental health treatment. And health psychology really is that intersection. And one way as a provider, I think this is a provider question, um, is to talk about the relationship between stress and pain or stress and really any medical condition. Stress is something that most people, even if they, they don't want to say I have depression or I have anxiety or I, I need to see a psychologist. People, most people will say, if you like, do you experience stress? Most people will say yes. Um, and so that's something that's very destigmatized. And we often consider ourselves stress management experts. Um, what's nice about being in pain psychology is that we're actually, you know, we're in the Department of Anesthesia, uh, and that there's something about being located actually in house in the pain clinic versus okay, now you go over there and you go to psychiatry and you go do this thing with the therapist. Um, and so I think introducing it in terms of a, a stress model um, and that these, these are stress management experts who work on this mind-body connection um, that we talked about today. Um, and that hopefully there's some kind of co-location in terms of where the mental health providers are, are based. That's, that's excellent news. And I'm glad to hear that there's approaches to speak with patients about keeping an open mind to the therapies and options that are available to them. Dr. Ivan, there is a question, a comment somebody made. I want to know if you could elaborate. Can you elaborate how the absence of pain leads quickly to death? Oh, the absence of pain. Yeah, right. Yeah. So if we don't have any kind of sign from our body, let's say, you know, I'm developing a cyst on my liver or something's coming up and I don't have any pain signal there, then I don't know to go get that checked out, right? So that might be dangerous or might not, but I don't know how to follow up on things, right? So unless I'm aware of that and going in to get multiple tests and workups at all times, just to be able to um, check up on that, it's very hard to know when something bad is happening um, that requires my attention. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. There was um, a question about that. I do have another question. If a patient comes to see you and the first question they might ask is, I've tried medications and I don't like it. What else can I do? How do you usually approach that? And how do you start that um, conversation? 
Yeah, I mean, for us as pain psychologists, we're all about behavioral interventions. And so that leads a really great gateway to kind of provide that psychoeducation about the biopsychosocial model and saying, okay, medications really address this one piece. You've tried it. It's not something that's worked for you. There's still these other two areas that we can work on, cognitive behavioral therapy, relaxation. How do we work with our mind and body? How do we re-engage in social activities and things that are important to us? How do we improve our sleep as a way to manage our pain and really get re-engaged in the life that is meaningful to us? And so I think providing that psychoeducation for a lot of people can be very validating and hopeful. Um, and to kind of add to the question that was answered earlier about buy-in, you know, we can't always help people if they're not willing to see that there's a benefit in what we do. But one question I like to ask people is what, what you've been doing over the last year, two years, three years, unfortunately, by the time people get to us, sometimes they've been um, managing chronic pain for decades. Has that been working? And if it hasn't, are you willing to borrow a little bit of, of my um, belief in the things that I do while yours gets built up to just try something different? The risks associated with the things that we do are very minimal, right? There's no side effects. There's no surgeries or things that can worsen pain. Potentially, you might lose some time because the things that I teach you don't work. But on the other hand, what you might gain is something that can really be something you haven't tried before that could really improve that functioning. We do tell people that, you know, when they come to therapy, it's like going to pick up your prescription at the pharmacy. Um, what you do in between sessions is taking the medications, right? So the interventions that we teach require prioritization. They require practice kind of like learning a new sport. We can't really make up our mind if we like basketball or not, because at first we might not really be able to shoot baskets. We, not, we might not be able to dribble. It might not be that fun or engaging. But if we keep showing up, good days and bad days, and keep practicing, it allows us to build that skill set. And then we can form an opinion about whether we think it works or doesn't work for us. So we we do really try to um, get people to give this a shot for a little while before give, giving a final opinion. But everyone's toolkit looks different. I really like the analogy, yeah. um, your sessions and prescription and taking your medicine. I think that's a, a nice approach. And it does sound like every one of these sessions is individualized, which is also important to understand is just not a cookie cutter approach. And I really, I think that's very informative too. So I wanted to thank both of you very much for this great lecture, Dr. Ivan and Dr. Jackson, thank you for your time. And I wanted to thank our attendees for their time as well. And we look forward to seeing you next week for our second lecture in the series, Addressing Low Back Pain. Again, thank you for your attention and have a great evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.